I'll be reading um, Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 9 uh, from the English Standard Version. Verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Uh, that's Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 13. Um, and I'll just hand it off to Dale. Thanks. Thanks, Alex. Do they usually teach from up here or is it down there? Oh, great response. Thank you. Sorry about that. Okay, open up your, please open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I'm going to preach 12 chapters of the Bible for you. Um, they get, you guys want that? Okay, let's start there, but we'll just get through chapter 12. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the time you've given to us to study your word. We thank you for the truth that it brings to our lives, for without it, we are without light, trying to figure out things in our own life, and often they don't work out well that way. But because of your grace, you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be our savior. We pray then, as we reflect that on that continuously, it gives us really insight not only in our relationship to you, but in our relationship to one another. We pray that we would um, see that in your word this evening. Please give us wisdom and understanding in Christ's name. Amen. As you open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, one of the things that you'll see is that common experience is really helpful for the people who, you know, um, experience something together. They begin to reflect on it as a, something that they remember. You might be in a situation, you went on vacation with somebody, and then you reflect back, hey, remember when we did that? Oh, yeah, I remember that. It doesn't have to actually be positive. Sometimes you can uh, be in a bad situation with other people, and you remember that. Do you, do you remember that time, you know, when, you know, uh, we almost had a forest fire, you know, when we were camping? That actually did happen at a camping, uh, church camping trip one time, that there was somebody who was playing with fire on the other campground. And do you remember when we had to evacuate? And then you begin to think about that shared experience. What, ha what happens with shared experiences is often people become closer together. They begin to realize that that experience had bonded them together. And what we're going to find in the book of Romans, that's actually true. And it's one of those things where devotion in the church really is, is really based on that. So if you open up your Bibles, you're in Romans chapter 1 right now, you'll see that Paul says here in Romans 1, 16 and 17, and uh, don't worry, I'll get to 12 pretty quickly. It says, and this is the English Standard Version, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And you understand the term gospel really is the term good news. And the good news here is that we can have eternal life as God has given to us through Jesus Christ. And that's the good news. But you realize, and you've heard this before, that really good news is better seen in the light of bad news. Suppose someone came up to you and said, hey, how, you know, so, oh man, someone, someone hit your car, you know, and it's all dented. And you go, what happened? And you 
go over there and you look at it and he goes, that's not my car. And, and you, I know you feel good because it's not you, but you feel bad, somebody else. Okay, I understand that. You're, you're compassionate, but to a limit. But you realize, oh, I'm so relieved. You know, that's not mine. I'm sorry, the other guy hopefully has insurance as well. But what happens in the book of Romans here, Romans chapter 1, we realize that if you read verse 18 and on to, to verse 32, it's our biography. It's our story. For it says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's us. By our very nature, we've turned our back on God. We've decided that, as the passage goes on, that we would exchange the glory of the Father, the glory of God, for sinful things. You and I in our past life have chosen sinful things versus God. But you're probably saying, oh, I didn't know better. And that's true. But in God's view, it doesn't matter. We still sin. And even though, I know this is not, you can talk to people who do not know Christ, and they'll say, no, this doesn't feel right. No, I don't think we should do that. And they, they have no moral standard other than it doesn't feel right. In their heart, they know that something's wrong. It's that inward knowledge that God has given every human being of right and wrong. For it says, they knew it. The invisible attributes of God, the passage goes on. They knew about God, but they denied him. That's our story. If you were actually in Rome at this time, Paul's writing 55, 56 AD or so around there, you would probably have been in the midst of slaves. For in the city of Rome, there were actually more slaves than free people. In fact, uh, one person uh, who was a a Roman official had this great idea. He says, you know, I walk around here and I see slaves dressed as well as I am, you know, and they don't know their place. Perhaps, men, what we ought to do is we should make slaves dress poorly in a different color, not like us. It only took him a few minutes before he got shouted down. For the guy said, hey, mm, hey, guy, guess what? If you actually did that, they would see there's more of them than us. And it would only take a few of them to kill all of us. So let's not do that. And for those of you who are, you know, current, you've seen A Bug's Life, and you know how that works out. So, so what happens is they realize, okay, you got the Disney reference. So what happens is you realize that, we were like that, and this gospel really appealed to people who were trapped. If you thought of the life of a slave, someone could tell you what to do, and you had no choice. The choice you would have is do it or die. Do it or go to prison. Do it or have something chopped off of your body. Because masters had absolute sway over the lives of their slaves. You and I were slaves to sin. Not only that, we were bound as slaves to sin under a holy God. And this holy God could strike you and me down with the, the blink of an eye. A word spoken. And you and I would have been dead. But he didn't decide to do that. He decided, on the other hand, to send his one and only son who never sinned, 
to take the punishment of our sin on himself to the point where you and I now share not in sin, but you and I share in his righteousness. For it is the power of God unto salvation. The righteous shall live by faith. And what God now calls us because of what Jesus did for us is the righteous by faith. He no longer calls us sinners, and we ought not refer to ourselves that way necessarily, but he calls us the righteous by faith. And it's through that faith that we grow and we understand who God is. And so Paul goes on in the book of Romans, and he goes through chapter after chapter telling us about the life that God has for us. So much so, if you turn over to the book, uh, to chapter 8 of the book of Romans, chapter 8, In chapter 8, if I know, I'll read, I'll start from verse 36, and I'll read through some of the chapter, uh, um, through the rest of the chapter, part of it. It says in Romans 8, 26, it says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, for the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What the Spirit is doing is what you and I could not say. The Spirit is vocalizing for us before God. And it says in verse 28, the the verse that many of you know and perhaps have memorized, it says, and we know that for those who love God, that's us, for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And what is that purpose? And he goes on to describe that. For those whom he foreknew, That is, he decided to know. He also predestined, predetermined that they would be conformed to the image of his son. So that in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predetermined or predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. To the point where God takes us from Romans 1. And when we are dead in our sin, when we are condemned, we are wicked and vile before our holy God. To the point he comes to the, to the last of Romans 8 and he says, you're going to be perfect. You're going to be righteous. And not only that, you're going to be glorified. You're going to be like Jesus Christ. You're going to be like his son. But he goes further. He doesn't stop there in, in Romans chapter 8 where he says in verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Very common question. Because God is the strongest in all of the creation. He, having not been part of creation himself, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him, the son, graciously give us all things? So if he didn't stop by giving up his son, he's going to give you more on top of that. And it says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who declares righteous or justified. Who is there to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Now listen to this, verse 35 and following. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. 
And if you're in our Sunday school class with Brian and Pastor Ray and myself, and you look through church history, and if you look at this time period, sorry, Pastor Ray, taking away some of your stuff, is that at this period of time, they're being killed all the day long. Paul's not writing something hypothetical. He's telling these Roman citizens what they're experiencing. These Christians, by these Roman emperors who are trying to stamp out this weird sect of Judaism called Christians, but they're not really part of Judaism. So because they're not part of Judaism, they don't have the protection of Judaism. So what the Romans want to do, because the, because the Christians say that there is only one Lord and only one king, and his name is Jesus, and his name is not Caesar, because of that, the Romans want to kill the Christians because now there's a fear of disloyalty and rebellion. So Paul's not writing some makeup possibility. This is something that they're experiencing every day. They are being killed. They are being tortured. They are being thrown to animals to be torn apart. And so what Paul's writing to them is something that's very personal to them. But he says in verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. If you're in the Roman culture, the biggest thing you want to be is a conqueror. For they had conquered almost all of the known land and territory through their expansion. If anything, you would say about the Romans, they were conquerors. But Jesus says, we're, or Romans, uh, Paul says about what Jesus did is we're more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation shall be able to do what? Shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's love will reach you anywhere. God's love will not stop. This is on God's unstoppable love. There is nothing under all creation, no government, no you know, human instrument, no angel, no devil can stop God from loving you. Isn't that a tremendous thing? So we went from Romans 1 where we're condemned against God to the point now he's made us righteous in Christ. And he says to us, I will never stop loving you. Paul goes on to write... Romans chapter 9 to 11, to talk about God's plan for Israel, that God has not abandoned Israel, and that he has a plan. He will return to them. So turn your, in your Bibles then to Romans chapter 12, and let's begin. That was all background. You guys like that? Just background. So you, you look at this, that we're... If we, we would leave Romans 9 to 11 as a separate topic, and we go right from God's unstoppable love in chapter 8, and we jump right into chapter 12, we have what Paul says is, is the logic result. It says in verse 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, and it's also based on what God, he said about Israel. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the God, which is your spiritual service. 
And the idea there is that you've heard this, this passage probably taught several times. And everything you heard is probably true. It's really by God's mercy on you, our lives and God's love for us. But the, the request there, the command there, is that we present our bodies a living sacrifice. That it's not just about my head and my mind, my heart. It's my actual physical being that I'm presenting myself to God as a living sacrifice. So the life that I live in this life is about uh, a life lived for God. The idea of a sacrifice, you'd understand, you'd be told that, you know, you kill an animal, you put it on a, an altar, they throw butt, a blood around, they wipe the blood, uh, sometimes on the forehead of the, the giver. There's lots of sorts of rituals in the Old Testament about sacrifice, blood sacrifice. But here there is no blood. It's the life that's being sacrificed. It's the daily choices that we make that are being sacrificed, that are being offered to God. And it says, I want you to make, you know, present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. The term for, uh, there are several terms in the scripture used for worship. There is the, the term that, that's often used as, you know, they'll say that somebody ran up to Jesus and worshiped him. It's a, it's a term that in Greek means to go to the knee. It's like this. Someone goes down, like you'll see in, in movies where, you know, someone will show homage by going to their knee and bowing their head. That's the idea of that term, to worship God, proskuneo. But this one is different. This is a different term. It's, it's a term that's called letreo. Letreo in terms of worship is different. Letreo is service worship. It's that you show God honor by serving not by falling to the knee and humbling yourself. It's by serving. It's by doing things that you show this worship to God. And that what he's asking here is that we would present our bodies a living sacrifice in worship to God in service. In service. And it happens by verse 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind, our minds, the way we think, the way we see, the way we feel about things. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And then in verses 3 to 8, he describes what spiritual service looks like. And we'll just go over it fairly quickly. It's the idea that God has assign different spiritual gifts to different people. And these different spiritual gifts are meant to serve the body. And so he looks like that, and he says in verse 4, for as in one body you have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. We understand that. Look at your physical body. Many different parts, many different functions. So he says in verse 5, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. He talks about prophecy. He talks about service. He talks about teaching, exhortation, uh, contributing, and the uh, leadership in mercy. And then he comes to our passage. And he actually takes a broader look of what service looks like. Let me read it for you. It says, let love be genuine. When he talks about being love being genuine, you, we understand that he's using the term agape. And if, you know, as you understand the term agape, you realize it's really a will to love. It's actually a decision to love something. 
it's not about feeling, and it's not really necessarily about uh, uh, some sort of feeling or affection. It may involve that. It probably does. But agape love is a, is a choice love. And we understand that because the way that the New Testament writers use it. Um, in the past, some people have said, well, you know, agape love is God's wonderful love, God's special love. And it, it, it sound, that sounds good for certain passages, but the reality is if you look at the book of John, men love darkness rather than light. Men agape darkness. They chose to love darkness rather than light. So there's nothing really intentionally spiritual to have agape or not agape. Everybody has agape. It's a matter of the object of your love. It's the object of your agape that's really in view here. And so he says, let love, let your will to love be genuine. I think the NASB actually has a little bit better. It says, let it be without hypocrisy. The term there is actually, because there are different Greek terms to use for genuine, to talk about something that's real, the, uh, the real thing. He's using the term, let your love be without hypocrisy. And if you guys remember, you've probably heard sermons on it where you look at Roman theater. Roman theater had, you know, they didn't have a backdrop. They didn't have, you know, something behind them to tell you where you were or how people felt. And the amphitheaters were huge. So they couldn't necessarily see the easily the facial expression or the tones. They couldn't make quick changes of clothes. So what they would do is quick changes of the mask. I'm a happy person. I'm a sad person. And so they would just interchangeably change the mask to show who they were. But you would never know who they were until you, you really saw the mask. Well, the idea of a, the hypocrite, the actor, would continually just change his mask. And then you would know that he's a good guy or a bad guy based on the mask. But it was very artificial because it was just the mask. What he's saying here is let love, let love be without mask. Let love be such that the relationship that we share in Jesus Christ be genuine. That we're not putting on a mask for each other. I'm not going to try to be, pretend to be spiritual. <clears throat> I'm not going to be that group there, you know, and, oh, I'm, you know, I only studied the Bible seven hours today. You know, I feel really bad, you know. As if now you would praise me for studying the Bible for a long period of time. And we're not there where we're trying to get people to like us or respect us by what we do. Rather, love that's genuine is not trying to get something from someone. Love that's genuine is always willing the best for somebody according to what's true. And so he's saying, let love be genuine. Let it be without hypocrisy. Don't put on a mask when, when you're with each other. Be authentic. Then he says, abhor what is evil. And the term there that is used for evil is a general term for wickedness. Things that are wrong, that you can tell just looking at it, it's wrong. And he says to abhor it means to actually get away from it. It doesn't mean just to stand there and go, <gasps> what, what it is is, Abhorring evil in this term is when you see evil, you go away from it. You make, a, you make a physical move away from it. You actually try to get away from the evil. And it's not that you just look at it and keep looking at it and abhorring it oh, and gasp. It's that when you see evil, you turn the other way. It's an intentional act to go in the other way. And that's where the next, verse, the next section comes from is hold fast to what is good. And the term the earth is used of glue. It means to be stuck to what's good. 
It's not just to see evil there and see good there. It's actually to turn away from the evil and hold on and be stuck to what's good. And so what Paul is envisioning is almost like one step, is getting away from the evil and clinging to what's good. Because what's going to happen is that's going to make your love genuine. That's what's going to make your love with hypocrisy. Because if you look at the people that, of the world and how we are were, sometimes they do things to get things, right? Is that right? Do something to get something. They treat people one way because they want something from them, right? And so when you see that, that's, not, that's love that has hypocrisy. There's, not, there's nothing genuine there. The next verse, love one another with brotherly affection. There's two words there for love there. And the, the first one of love one another is, is not agape. It's, it's Philadelphia. It's, the, it's brotherly love. It's the, it's the love of brothers and sisters to one another. And then it's interesting because he says love one another with brotherly affection. The term that he uses for affection is actually the other term for love that happens very rarely in the New Testament. It's the term storge. And the idea there of storge has to do with family love. So he's giving two, two words for love in the same verse that talk about brotherly family love. When he talks about this type of love, he says let love be brotherly love with affection. He says the affection that a family has for one another, a good family that cares for one another, that works to, for each other's benefit and good, a love that looks out for each other, a love that helps each other, strengthens, they stick together, they battle others together. They're, they're in a sense, family. So what he's looking for us to do is to have love, in verse 9, and in verse 10, that it's a very communal family-type love. The next line, outdo one another in showing honor, has to do with leading the way. Outdo one another is better translated to show the way, to lead the way in showing honor. How do you show honor to somebody? You acknowledge what they, who they are and what they do. You praise it. And what you do is you, you end up saying good things about the other person in honest praise. And when you begin to honor one another in honest praise, you create an upward spiral, an upward spiral of relationship because you begin to understand the, th the good things about each other. And as you begin to rehearse them in your head, in your mind, in your heart, you begin to build them up and strengthen them. And they begin to look at you and they say, yeah, you know, I'm good at this, but you're really good at that. Yeah, but look at this. And they begin to not just give each other false compliments, but real compliments because what they're saying is, <clears throat> you know, brother or sister, I see the work of God in your life. And you're praising them, but you're really praising God as well. And so what's happening is in this relationship of leading the way in showing honor to one another, you're making another conscious effort to show the glory of God in the other person's life. You just say, you're just pointing out things, wow, you know, that is so insightful. That is, you know, that's very biblical. That's very helpful to me. In verse 11, it says, do not be slothful in zeal. And the idea here is to, to be speedy. The term is 
is be speedy in zeal, to do the right thing. Be quick to do the right thing is really what it's saying. And, and the next line, be fervent in spirit. The, the term fervent means to boil over. Be boil over in your, in your spiritual connection with one another. And the idea of combining those, it says, don't be slothful in zeal. Be quick to do it. Be fervent in spirit. Be boiling over. And then what's the last line of the triplet? Serve the Lord. You know, you're going to be fervent. You're going to be excited. You're going to, be, you're going to have lots of enthusiasm about what's going on. You're going, to talk, you're going to be here listening to Edwin saying, you know, I don't know what we're going to do next Friday, but bring cash. You know, oh, that sounds like fun, you know. You know, but will I bring home any cash or are you going to take it? I don't know. Okay. I don't know what's going on in the joint areas. We have to review that at the elders meeting. Okay. I'm sure, you know, Pastor Ray and Pastor Roger give a full report, you know. Where did the money go? Okay. And so the idea here is that you're, you're, you're not slothful, you're not lazy in zeal, doing the, uh, but you're boiling over, and you're serving God in that. And that's pretty exciting. You're having that enthusiasm for the service toward God. Those two verses talk about relationships. In, in, in 9 and 10, it talks about relationships often for, for human relationships. This, this past verse that we just discussed about zeal and 12, what we're talking about now, a lot of it has to do Godward. It says, look, rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. And those aren't just helpful words that you put on a plaque. Because if you're in the time of the Romans, living under Roman rule, facing that level of persecution in which it's life and death, all you have is hope. Hope in God, not hope in Caesar. And not hope in government. You're patient in tribulation, why? Because you're facing tribulation. If you're not getting hurt, you know somebody who is. And that's heartache. And the response to that of hope and patience is being constant in prayer. Prayer individually, prayer corporately. Your response to God is that. And lastly, in verse 13, it, it turns us to one more thing. Having looked manward in terms of loving, having turned Godward and towards his zeal and hope, patience and prayer, he now turns our, our minds back to men and women amongst our midst. He says in verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Let's break it down a little bit. When he says contribute to the needs of the saints, you see your brother and sister whom the Romans have just taken away their property. They're destitute. They have nothing. Contribute to their needs. What do you got that you can give to them? That's what these people that are receiving this letter are facing. It's not hypothetical. It's real. But in our day, we can think about those amongst us who maybe need something that we can contribute to their needs. Some people need something physical. They may need, you know, they're out of work. Maybe they need some cash. Maybe they need a tip on a, a job. Maybe they need a referral. Maybe they need a ride to church. What is their need that you can meet? What is their physical need that can help them? But he goes beyond that, and he says, seek to show hospitality. The term hospitality is really literally love of strangers, love of strangers. And that doesn't mean you take homeless people into your house, 
But what it does do mean is look for those who are in need that you really don't necessarily feel akin with. You know, you're not best buddies with them, but hey, you know, there is there's caution to be done, right? You gotta you gotta be prudent about this. But you need to think about showing hospitality. What does that mean? What does it mean to show love for strangers, those who you don't necessarily know? When you talk when we started talking about this, I talked about shared experience. Shared experience. And the reason is is because you and I have a shared experience. And it's not because we're of a certain ethnic group. It's not because you live in a specific geographic location. It's not because you just happen to have Friday nights free. That's not what brings us together. Our joint experience started in Romans chapter 1, when we were all condemned, every one of us. We might as well, we might as well have been on an ocean liner, sinking in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, and by some miraculous thing, we survived. That you and I would constantly look back on that one event and we'd say, hey, do you remember the time that we almost drowned? Do you guys remember that? I mean, lifeboats are getting full, all things, you know, and people were taking all sorts of luggage and we had to throw it out. And do you guys remember that experience? And we say, yeah, boy, we just barely made it out of there. Yeah. Whoa. Whoa, that's good. Yeah, you know, we ought to have a reunion every year, you know, something like that, the survivors. And what happens is, is that you begin to realize that that shared experience just brought us closer together. And if you haven't really done that, I've, I've, I've done that with people, just kind of weird things, you know. Something goes wrong. You know, I used to travel for work a lot. I don't travel much anywhere. Um, I do ride to my bike to work now. But that shared, and that was actually interesting because I had a lot of shared experience today because I met a lot of other cyclists where I work because we had this jump bike thing going on. And I met a lot of cyclists. And with that shared experience of riding your, your bike to work, kind of just brought us together. I don't know, I didn't know them before, and I shake their hands, and what do you, how far do you ride? You know, it's a nice bike, would you get that, you know, and how long you had it, and stuff like that. It's that shared experience that brings together. You can imagine if that, every one of us here, someone would break in that door, and all of a sudden they would say, you know, we're taking over in San Francisco Bible Church, and we want everybody to line up against the wall, and we're going to kill every one of you, we're going to shoot you, and, and then, oh, then all of a sudden, that was gone. The threat was gone. The police came in, rushed out, and took him away. You know, I thought, oh, man, we almost didn't make it out today. And you start thinking, that shared experience would bring us together. But the shared experience of being condemned by God and then rescued by God is something that will last throughout eternity. And how we respond in the light of that is what Romans 12 is about. It's about having that shared experience of being rescued by God. And now God is saying, you must serve me spiritually and physically. That's, that joint service and joint heirs is your spiritual service to one another. It's that time that you spend together getting to know one another. It's those meals, those coffee breaks. It's those prayer groups. It's the singings together. That joint experience brings you guys together. To the point where you're able then to love one another without hypocrisy. You're able to show zeal toward God with one another. You're, show, you're there to show hope with each other, patience with each other, and continual prayer with each other. And that's what Joinerus is about. It's about 
people coming together because of your shared experience of being saved through Jesus Christ. And it's about building up and strengthening one another. There are other groups like Blueprints who, who also meets on Friday night. And then there's uh, the high school and the junior high group that also meets. And they also have the same experience of that shared experience of knowing Jesus Christ as God, as Lord. And so what I'd like to encourage you tonight is to think about that. Is where do you go from here? And in that shared experience of being delivered from death to God's kingdom of righteousness, how, how does that can affect your relationships to one another? And the reality is what the scriptures are saying, you got to be devoted to one another, even as you're devoted to Christ. You need to show the love of Christ, the love that you show toward Christ, you show one another in the words that you say, the things you do for one another, those acts of kindness, and even those acts of correction are signs that you love them, you care for them. You ask them the following week, that thing that you told me about, how did it work out? Why? Because I was praying for you this week. I didn't pray every day, but as often as I remembered, I prayed for you. How did it work out? Oh, man, I'm glad you prayed because it went like this. Or, hey, yeah, despite your prayers, ha, ha. Oh, let's pray some more then. So let's pray now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who gave us eternal life. We thank you that through Jesus Christ and him alone, our sins are paid for. Wow. And that your Holy Spirit has then applied his sacrifice to our lives and placed us into the body of Christ, the church. And more than that, the Holy Spirit has been sent to live in each of us individually. And more than that, the Holy Spirit has been sent to live in us as his temple corporately. So, Father, we just pray as we remember that, as that permeates our thinking, we may treat each other with, with just love. Let it be without hypocrisy. Let us abhor what is evil and cling to what's good. Let us be those who reflect Jesus Christ in everything we say to do with each other. And in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.